You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Revelation chapter 1, we are in verse 9. We've done the first eight verses. We've seen how this book is an unveiling of the person of Jesus Christ. And we are still going to continue with that theme until the end of the chapter. And as we've mentioned a few times now, Revelation is a much neglected book in the church. And I'm hoping that from this introduction over the past three weeks, we can try and show that that's a great shame because you miss so much uh, of Jesus Christ if you miss out this book. So let's just jump straight in. Let's do verse 9 together. I'll just pray quickly first. So Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, now as we open your wonderful word, Lord, that you would just show us your truth, show us your treasures, and reveal yourself to us in new ways, Father. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. So he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word and the testimony of Jesus. So here we get a little insight into the life and times of John the Apostle. And I want to flesh out this historical backdrop a little bit for you now this morning because it does provide context for the book. Remember, yes, this is the book of Revelation. Yes, it's for us, church, in 2021, studying it. It's for all the ages, but... Also remember, this was written in the first century. There is a historical context that that church would have understood in better ways than we would. And I want to try and hopefully draw some of that out this morning. So he identifies himself as the Apostle John. This is the only surviving apostle at this time, the only surviving person who had spoken with the Lord Jesus. The Apostle John had been a resident in Ephesus. That's one of the churches there. Do you remember we have the whole book of the Ephesians written to that church? It was a thriving church. The Apostle John was probably one of the chief elders, or we would say pastor probably there at this stage. But I also like the way, you know, this was the Apostle John. He knew the Lord Jesus. He spoke with the Lord Jesus. He was a leader of one of the churches, but he doesn't put that in the introduction here. He just simply says, I'm your brother and your fellow partaker. And I like that. He doesn't place himself above the people. He just puts himself with them. It's very similar to when Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He used a very similar phrase. He said, I'm your fellow partaker of the gospel. As in, we are all sinners and we are all where we are because of the grace of God, because of the gospel of Jesus. So here he says, though, he is a fellow partaker in the tribulation, the suffering and the persecution that these Christians had been receiving in the first century. But he is also a partaker of the kingship and perseverance that come by being in a relationship with Jesus. And it says he was on the island called Patmos. And John was sent there by the Roman emperor Domitian. And much of the book of Revelation actually is a polemic. uh, That means an, an argument against Domitian as the emperor and the whole Roman world in particular. So I want to talk a little bit with you about the emperor Domitian now. He was the son of the emperor Vespasian, and his brother was Titus. You may know those names if you're a Bible student. Do you remember when we study about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem before they destroyed it? If you go to Israel today, there's a certain place where you go up in in the high mountains, and you can still see the stones and the Roman encampments where they did this. That was Titus and Vespasian. They were the two, they were known, their their fame came from sacking Jerusalem in 70 AD, and now we're dealing with the son of Emperor Vespasian, he was Domitian, and this they call these three people the Flavian dynasty, he was the last of the Flavians, that's one of their names, 
in Rome. Now, he was a very superstitious man. He fully believed in the pantheon of the Roman gods. He would often consult Apollo, the god of prophecy. Remember, we studied this a little bit when we looked at the, the Delphic Oracle in Corinth, just how popular this sort of thing was in the ancient world. Kings and leaders and emperors would go and consult the Roman gods looking for guidance on the future. Domitian was a great believer in the, god of, uh, in the Roman god Apollo. One of the beliefs associated with Apollo was that ravens, if you know, in particular, had a role in foretelling the future. The idea was that with the, the, the directions that they fly, you could deduce certain things, and this was associated with the god of uh, prophecy, Apollo. Now, that might sound weird to us, but I remind you, this is the Roman emperor. This is the most powerful person in the, the whole empire at that stage. He took this very, very seriously, to the point that in his reign, he even had a coin that he, he minted. It had a raven on the back, and it had Jupiter on the front there. And that just shows how important he took these prophecies or these ideas that they had in the Roman pantheon of gods. Now, at the same time, I think it's not a mistake that during a time when the world was ruled by a man who was looking to ravens, who was looking to Roman gods, we have a message given to a man called the Apostle John that is probably the most prophetic book in the whole Bible. And these two things, I don't believe, are by accident. So he began his reign okay, Domitian, but he slowly sort of got more and more tyrannical, if I could say that, as his, aim, aim, uh, as his reign went on. Usually a Roman emperor would be deified after he died. The Senate would then proclaim them a god and they would get a statue and all the usual accolades they did in the Roman Empire. But Domitian had a problem. He was very megalomaniacal and he wanted to be deified before he was in fact dead. So he spent a lot of effort making sure everyone knew that he was in fact a god. There's an ancient writer called Suetonius he wrote a famous treatise called The Lives of the Caesars in the second century. It's where we get most of our information about the Roman world, the Roman Caesars. He said this of Domitian. He said, with no less arrogance, he began as follows in issuing a circular letter in the name of his procurators that said this, our master and our God bids that this be done. So what he's basically saying is that Domitian would tell all, all of his people who worked under him and said, when you, when you send a letter out to the people in my name, asking them to do something, make sure you, you tell them that their master and their God is telling them. That's what, if it's coming from me, Domitian, you'll tell it. That's, that was the attitude that this man had. And we have uh, written here, that was what he did. And to the point that he even, again, fancied himself so much in that role that he had a number of different coins minted. This is where most of our evidence comes from, some of these coins that we find. But I want to point out a few features on them because they are uh, quite fascinating for our study here. So this first coin, the one that you can see on the screen now, this is called the Divine Caesar coin. And on the one side, it actually had a bust of his wife on the front uh, with the inscription Mother of the Divine Caesar around it. And then on the back it had a picture of his son, and there were a few different coins. Some had the mother on, some had him on. As always, there's many different types of coin. They get minted every year. But on the back, on all of them, you have this picture, which is a globe representing the Earth. 
his son, if you can see, probably make that out there, sitting on top of the globe. And then notice there are a number of stars. Uh, most of the coins had seven stars around them sitting on the earth. And on the back of this coin, it said, the divine Caesar, son of the emperor Domitian. Now, this Domitian had a son who died just two years after he came to be emperor. So that's what he's referring to here. It's a way of honoring his son. But it's much more to it than that. You see, the globe represents the world dominion and power. And the stars typically speak of the divine nature of the person that they are encircling. So you have here an infant depicted on the globe who was being referred to as the son of God. And this infant was said to be the one in whom the world would be conquered by Domitian. This was the legend that grew up around his son. Now the point obviously is if his God is a son, if he is the son of a God, you could say, who was God? Of course his father was Domitian, who was still ruling at this time. So you can see there, but I want you to note, there is a son of God with seven stars around him. Now we're going to read in a minute that the description of Jesus given in this first chapter is he is standing in the midst of seven stars. And you can see the polemic going on here against the Roman world. As all of these Christians would have been uh, using these coins, they would have known that there was this man claiming to be God who's sitting in front of these seven stars. The Lord reveals a message to the Apostle John and he says, I'm going to tell you about the real son of God. And he is also going to be in amongst these seven stars. And you can see how that would have just had so much meaning and comfort to those Christians. We miss that, but this is the history that is going on here at this time. Now, again, to show the sort of the increasing nature of his reign, he minted another coin. In 84, he minted a coin with the god Jupiter on the back. And Jupiter always had the thunderbolt. The thunderbolt was the symbol of deity. He, he did a number of versions of these coins, and it's funny as they find them, as they watch what happens. In the first issue, the first mint, as they, as they say, it was Jupiter holding the thunderbolt. And then in the years 85 and 86, he did a couple of different versions, and he switched it up a bit. He changed Jupiter, and he put himself on there, and he was holding the thunderbolt. So some of them he was holding the thunderbolt, some of them Jupiter. He kind of shared that role with Jupiter. And then in the years 87 to 96, which crosses over into the time of Revelation... He got rid of Jupiter and it was just him, Domitian, holding the thunderbolt, which is again just shows you the kind of growing uh, dictatorial nature of his role there as he settled into his role as God in the Roman Empire. Now, as a result of this emperor worship, the cult of emperor worship, they called it, that they had in this time, there was a temple built to the emperors in Ephesus. You can see the remains of it here. If you ever been to Ephesus, you can still go and visit this place today. This was the emperor temple. And in this temple, you would find statues of people like Jupiter and Zeus and many of the pantheon of Roman gods. But you would also have statues of the previous emperors of the Roman uh, Empire. The idea was to show to the people that the emperors join the pantheon of Roman gods at this time. Therefore, they are then elevated to that divine position. That is the idea there. And within this temple, there was a 25-foot-high statue of Domitian, and they found parts of it today, just the head and the massive arm and things like that. And you can still go and see that in a museum, I believe. Now, this is where John was, remember. He was ministering in Ephesus when this temple was being built, when this man was claiming to be God, claiming to have a son of God, standing in front of the seven stars. And hopefully you can start to see just how the context that we have in Revelation here was 
pivotal to understanding why John writes this. Now, if you can imagine John, I very much doubt that he visited this temple, very much doubt that he bowed down and paid homage to the emperor worship, to the cults. He also very unlikely refused to stop preaching the gospel of the true son of God. And it is speculated that for these reasons, he so irritated the emperor and the authorities that they wanted to remove him and they sent him to the Isle of Patmos. This is the Isle of Patmos. It's a little island off the coast of Turkey. Actually, it's a Greek island, but it's, there's not really much to it. There's a bit more to it today. But in these times, it was a prison colony. Now, Roman Empire prisons, they weren't really interested in confinement. That was just a nonsense idea to them. Why would you try and keep prisoners alive? You'd have to pay for them. You'd have to feed them and do all these sorts of things. Prisons were basically you stay there until you get executed. Or if we can get something out of you, then we'll do that. So this was actually, there were mines on this, on this place and they used to send them there and they would be worked to death, basically. And that was the idea. John was in his you know, late 80s at this time and he was sent to this island and he was still forced to work in the mines, the historical records tell us. But this is where he was when he received the message, what we're reading here, the book of Revelation. Now, you see, eventually Domitian, because he was such a brutal man, he was a dictator, he took away all the power from the Senate, which was like the, the parliament, you could say, in Rome. They hated him for that, and eventually they had him assassinated. And then John was released from Patmos after Domitian died. But they passed a law removing the, the memory of Domitian from all history. That's why you don't find many inscriptions. All we have are these coins, really, that go back for Domitian. This emperor claimed divinity. He claimed to have a son who was also divine, who ruled the globe. He claimed the title of God, and yet people had to go and pay homage to a statue. John is about to present to us the true son of God, who is described as the living one, one who is said to rule forever and ever. And this would have been of great comfort to those first century Christians who are at this time, suffering under this empire and this government. Now, go back to the text, if you can, with me, please, that we just read in verse 1. It says, Because he was on the island called Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That is why he is there. Now, I want us to take note of this, because I find it very instructive for us and kind of challenging. He was there because he would not stop preaching the true gospel of the king. And when an emperor is trying to proclaim himself as Lord God and his son as divine, you could imagine that this did not make him particularly popular. He spoke truth into the world in Ephesus. So much that the forces of wickedness had him exiled, and then it was on that, in that exile that the Lord said, fine, little do they know, I'm going to give you the greatest word of prophecy ever given to man. But as we just stand back and before we get into this, I want us to think about our own testimony. I found this very challenging. He was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Put yourself in this environment or in any environment today. If a Domitian-like figure was observing your life, would you be recognized as someone standing for the testimony of Christ? I find that challenging. I don't know if you do. I mean, sometimes we need to examine ourselves in front of these things. If our words were monitored for a week, for a month, would, we be, would there be enough testimony to Jesus Christ that we'd be considered someone who, who needed to be exiled to Patmos? Or would they be like, nothing of any import coming from them, I'm happy just to leave them be? And that's challenging here, because it says he was imprisoned for the testimony and the word of Jesus Christ. 
In the 16th century in the Netherlands, there were a Protestant group called the Anabaptists. They were, in the many sense, the, the quite biblical Protestants. They believed in full baptism and these sorts of things. I won't go into the history. But many of them were being murdered, basically, for their faith and for their testimony in Jesus Christ. And one of them was a man named Hans Brett. I want to just read his story to you now because it, it's on this theme and it really spoke to me a lot this week or challenged me a lot. It says, Hans Brett was the sole support of his mother. He worked in a bakery. They lived in Antwerp in the Netherlands. And from the age of 21, Hans distinguished himself as a serious student of the Bible. Many sought him out for the privilege of studying with him because of his insight, kindness and earnestness. And then one evening, a knock came at the bakery door. There stood the bailiff of Antwerp and a number of his officers. The house was surrounded, all the occupants were arrested, and he was taken to the castle prison of Antwerp, and there tortured, and questioned several times over the next few months. Part of Hans' suffering was to be imprisoned alone in a dungeon for weeks, and from this dark hole he managed to write several letters to his mother, and here is part of one of those letters. For him alone we expect our strength to withstand these cruel wolves, so that they can have no power over our souls. They are really more cruel than wolves. They are not satisfied with our bodies tearing at them, but they seek to devour and kill our souls. And then it says, after eight, narration, not the letter, after eight months in jail, the torture became more severe, but Hans Brett did not recant his beliefs. And finally, he was brought before the court for a hearing where he testified boldly to his faith. And the sentence was pronounced, Hans would be burnt at the stake. Early in the morning on the day set for the burning, Saturday the 4th of January, the executioner came to Hans's cell and the executioner ordered him to put out his tongue and over it he placed an iron clamp. Then he screwed it tight with a vice screw over the tongue. You can see there, that's actually a, that's what they call a tongue screw. These are actually real things. They were, in part, invented for the Anabaptists, and I'll tell you why in a moment. What they would then do, once they've clamped that down and they've screwed it on your tongue, it says they, would, they seared the ends of Han's tongue. They would get a hot poker and they'd burn the end of his tongue. The idea is that the front of his tongue would then swell up so much that there's no way he could wiggle out and get that tongue back through the tongue. The tongue screw was made to prevent Hans, was put on him to prevent Hans from preaching the gospel to the people when he was on his way to the execution stake because they kept trying to kill these Anabaptists, and every time they would draw them out to the execution, which was always public, these people would start preaching, and it would go against what they were trying to do. So the authorities had to come up with a way to stop them testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they came up with the tongue screw. He was taken to the marketplace by wagon, he was tied to the stake, and he was burnt alive. And in the crowd watching at this moment was another man called Hans, who was actually his pastor and one of his very close friends and mentors. And Hans was on the front row watching this happen, watching his friend be burnt. And after this had all done, the crowds had dispersed, the ashes were all there. He went up to this pile of ashes and he retrieved a memento. The only thing left that was not ash was this tongue screw lying on the floor. And shortly after this, Hans, the, the, the one watching, married the mother of, the one, of Hans who had been killed. And in their family, they had this tongue screw of this young martyr, and they handed it down to their family for generations. They handed it down. And you might think that's rather morbid, but the reason they did this, they handed it down as a reminder that as long as their tongues were free, 
As long as their tongues were, lo were, were loose, you could say, they were to use them to tell of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I find that just such a challenging concept as we read this, as we, especially as we read about John, who was there, exiled on the island of Patmos, for the testimony and the word of Jesus Christ. You know, there's no playing Christian in that sort of a world, as far as you understand it. Let's look at verse 10. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, let's look at verse 11, saying, write in a book what you see, send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, John relays what happened to him in giving this revelation. It says, I was in the spirit. He was in the spirit. Now, this implies that this was a unique supernatural event. We know from the scriptures that all prophetic material has its origin in the Holy Spirit. It does not come from man. It does not come from diviners. The Lord categorically denies all those things. It comes from God himself, God alone. It, basically, he's saying here what he's about to describe to us is something supernatural from the Lord. It says he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. There's a lot of debate over what this actually means. It's a very unusual phrase. It literally reads a lordy day is actually how it would be literally translated. Uh, some people argue that this is referring to the period of time in the Bible called the day of the Lord, which is that final period of judgment before the Lord comes, which is what Revelation deals with. However, because that word is very well established by this point in the Bible, and this is not the same word, I have trouble actually seeing it being that day. Most likely, this is making a, a play on words with a cultural Roman tradition. At the first of every month, the first day of every month at this time during Domitian's rule, they designated that Emperor's Day. And this is when people would be voluntarily, with a spear to their back probably, would have to give donations to the, to the government, to the emperor, and do all this sort of thing. It was Emperor's Day. So it's more, more likely that the Christians countered that by having a Lord's Day. And it's probably more likely that this was on the day of the Lord's resurrection. It probably was referring to Sunday. However, there's no real way to prove either of those views. It's just speculation. But that's, the, that's what John says. So this happened on the Lord's Day. It says he heard a voice like a sound of a trumpet. This is often a way used to describe something in the Bible that is obviously, they're trying to get across the idea that this was so loud and of such an intensity and volume that you cannot mistake it, you cannot miss it. He then is told to write and send what he sees to the churches. So John recorded this book of what he has shown in this vision and he is to send it to those seven churches. Uh, they're all listed by name. And because in the next two chapters of Revelation, we're going to look at seven letters that are specifically written to those churches, I'm not going to go into their de any details about them now. Then go to verse 12. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now let me pause for a moment here before we look and see what he saw, because I want this to be contrasted in the most beautiful and wonderful way with the way that most of us think of our Lord Jesus, because we see him in this way all the time. We see him portrayed in art and in history. If any of you have watched the show The Chosen, that's very popular at the moment, he is portrayed in a particular way, and it is in the way that he was in his incarnation, dressed in clothes of the first century, sandals on his feet, walking around the dusty shores of the Galilee. It's never really been better stated for me than in that very famous poem, One Solitary Life. I read this, this poem years ago when I was a new believer, and it's always one that I've 
probably read here many times before too. I'm going to read it to you again because it really summarises the thought of how most of us think of our Lord. It says, He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30, and then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, he never held an office, he never had a family or owned a home, he didn't go to college, he never lived in a big city, he never travelled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. And he was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away, one of them denied him, he was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial, and he was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he remains the central figure of the human race. I think it is true when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. I love that poem. But my point is, and it's absolutely right to think of our Lord in those ways, but that is not how John is now going to describe the Lord Jesus. For us, because we, we live in the Gospels, that's what we think of when we think of the Lord Jesus. But now John is about to show us the other side of our Lord Jesus. And it is a very different picture to what we have there. So when it says he turned and he saw, he's coming away from that picture of the incarnate Lord. And now he's turning his eyes toward the glorified Lord. And this is a very different picture indeed. Verse 13, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet and girdled across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. And his face like the sun, was like the sun shining in its strength. So he sees these seven lampstands, first of all, and they are explained in verse 20 as being the seven churches. We'll look at that a little as we go on. He sees these seven lampstands, and it says, in the middle of these lampstands, he saw one like a son of man. Now, the son of man imagery in the Bible is something that is developed throughout the whole Old Testament. So we are going to have to do a little bit of digging now as we go through and flesh this picture out for you. But firstly, I want you to notice he is in the middle of these seven lampstands. Just as, do you remember in the Old Testament, you had the tabernacle, the house of God, where the glory would come and dwell. And then you had the Levites, who were the priests of the Old Testament. And it tells us in the book of Numbers that the Levites had to camp around the tabernacle. So right in the middle of the priests was the glory of God dwelling. This is exactly the same picture that we have here of the churches. The church is now the kings and priests uh, for, this, for this era of history. And now we see that Jesus Christ, the glory of God, is still dwelling in the midst of them. It tells us uh, really a lot. It tells us that Jesus is alive, that he is risen, and that he is active amongst his people, the body of Christ, the church. It says, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now, the prophet Ezekiel 
first saw this figure in a very hard to decipher bit of scripture in Ezekiel where he sees this vision of the throne room of God. And I say hard to decipher because I believe they're trying to describe something that our language can only go so far in describing. You understand when you see the heavenly vision, there's only so much words in the languages that we have available to us to describe it. That's why it sounds unusual. But he does describe seeing this son of man figure. Ezekiel 1 verse 26. This is Ezekiel's vision of the throne of God. He says, now above the expanse that was over their heads was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. It's a jewel. And on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. So this is in the Old Testament, remember. This is before Jesus came to the earth, but still he's seeing this son of man figure. He goes on to describe, he says, as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Now, two themes I want you to notice continually come up with, a glory, with the glory of God is radiance and light. This shining bright and this shining radiance that we keep seeing. Do you remember when the first martyr, Stephen, let's jump forward to the book of Acts now, when he was being killed uh, by people who were stoning him, the, he said this, he said, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is exactly the same as what Ezekiel saw, but now he's actually giving us the more information about it. But he's using the same phrase, the glory of God, the Son of Man. And obviously he's saying now, this is the Lord Jesus Christ welcoming him into heaven as he is being killed there. But notice the glory of God and then the throne of God and the title, the Son of Man. In the book of Daniel that we read last week, I won't turn to it now, we have this famous vision where the Son of Man is presented to this person called the Ancient of Days, the Father on the throne. It says here in the vision that he had a long robe and a golden sash. These are priests' outfits and these are kings' outfits. The long robe was a measure of importance and the sash was something that the priest had to wear. The high priest of Israel, the highest ranking priest in Israel, it says in Exodus 39, he had to wear a sash, but it was... It wasn't all gold. It had a thread of gold that was woven all the way through it. However, we're dealing with the supreme high priest. Remember in Hebrews, Jesus is called the ultimate high priest. He's the highest priest of all. Not like the old Levitical priests who would die. This is a high priest who lives evermore to make intercession for us. So there's not, his sash does not just have one thread of gold on it. His sash is entirely of gold. And gold is also the color of royalty. He was a king and he was a priest. This is the vision of what we're getting here with this person, Jesus Christ. It says his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. So this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. If you have it, you can turn there. Daniel chapter 7 is a very important passage that you need to really understand as we go through the book of Revelation. But I want you to notice something. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, let me read this to you. It says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. So hopefully you can see very easily where Revelation is pulling that imagery from. But notice in Daniel, the white hair and the snow and the wool is talking about God the Father. Now in Revelation, this is being applied to Jesus Christ. 
So what is this white hair? What are we talking about? Now, most people hear that and they assume, well, it's, it's sort of this grandfatherly picture of this man with this aged hair. That's absolutely not what it's referring to. The white hair is not saying the colour of his actual hair in that sense. It's, it's supposed to represent the light that is radiating from this being, the glory of God, actually, that is radiating from this being, is so bright that it is white like wool. That is really what it's getting at here. It is the glory of God that is being shown here. And the reason why the Son is now said to have this same glory as the Father is because he, in fact, is part of the Godhead. In John 17, 5, do you remember when Jesus was on this earth and he was praying? And when he was on this earth, his glory was veiled in a body of human flesh. But he said to the Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is the glory that always belonged to the Son. The Lord does not share his glory with another. It belonged to the Father, it belonged to the Son. And now we're seeing the Son in his resurrected glory has that glory again on him. He is now the one shining with the radiance of this glory that is coming from the throne. It is emanating from him. When Paul saw this glory on the Damascus Road as he was converted, it was such a bright light that it blinded him, literally, for days. That is the sort of glory that we're talking about here. It's not something tame. It's something that is just so powerful and overwhelming that if he looked upon it, it actually blinded him, the Apostle Paul. But he goes on. He doesn't just have his head and his hair shining with this glory. It says his eyes were like a flame of fire. This really evokes the image of a gaze which is constantly piercing the darkness, laying bare all sin. It is a reference to his omniscience, that is, his, his all-knowing power, it is a reference to his omnipresence, that is his all, the fact that he sees everything everywhere, and obviously fire is often used to indicate judgment. Job 28:24. he looks at the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. Psalm 90, verse 8, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And then in Hebrews 4:13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There is nothing that the eyes of the Lord does not see. There is no one that will get away with anything when this time comes that we're reading about in the book of Revelation. He is the judge of all the earth, and we know the judge of all the earth will do right. So those people, those demissions of this world who are deifying themselves, those ones who are seemingly getting away with a lot, causing great destruction, great hurt on this earth, there will be a time when the Lord will expose these things and no one will get away with anything. Everyone gets their just desserts. The only people who don't are those who cling to the cross of Christ because we have been forgiven. That is what Jesus came to do. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. When it has been made to glow in a furnace, his voice was like the sound of many waters. Now, bronze, again, was a symbol of judgment. This is why the altars were always made out of bronze in the Bible. It speaks of this sort of furnace, this purifying effect. This is a symbol of Jesus in his second coming. His feet were of bronze. We have to understand this. Now, when he came, again, think back. When we think of Jesus, we think of him in walking the shores of Galilee. When he walked the shores of Galilee 2,000 years ago, his feet were like those in Isaiah that says how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, who brings the good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. 
And that's how our feet are supposed to be today, as we take the gospel out, the message of peace, the message of forgiveness to people. However, Revelation is not dealing with that time anymore. That time has passed when we get here. Now, when Jesus comes back in his glory, his feet are like bronze. What did man do to the first feet that walked the shores of the Galilee? We stuck a giant nail through them, didn't we? And we put him on the cross. That's what man did to those feet. Man will never get that chance again. When he comes back the second time, his feet are like burnished bronze and they are coming back to take back his kingdom and his throne. And I say this is, this is serious stuff here. This is why when we talk about these things, we don't do it lightly. This is serious, but this is dealing with the final era of history. Isaiah 63 gives us a glimpse of this. Isaiah 63, verse 1 to 3. The one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the winepress? He says, I have trodden the wine trough alone and the peoples there was no man with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Remember, those people will suffer. They are the ones who are taking his kingdom. And it says, actually, as we learn in the book of Revelation, they actually end up fighting against God. There are people who hate the Lord. And the Lord offers them grace after grace after grace. And in this era, when we are the ones taking the gospel to them, they can receive the gospel and be forgiven 100% just like anyone else. But when the king comes, he's coming back to take his kingdom. And anyone who is not with him is against him at that time. And this is what happens. It's a serious part of history. It says his voice was like the sound of many waters. Again, that's often a way of just trying to describe, if you've ever heard how loud a waterfall is or how, how loud like rushing water is, there's no way you can really hear anything else when that's going on. That's the idea given here. In his right hand, he held seven stars. I hope you understand the importance of that imagery of seven stars now in the Son of God from the, the historical context. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining in its strength. So the seven stars are, in fact, it says, the angels to the seven churches mentioned in the, the final verse that we'll read in a minute. I won't go into that too much. It says he has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now, of course, he didn't actually have a sword coming out of his mouth. So I believe this is totally uh, the imagery being given here is the sword in the Bible is always speaking of the word of God. And of course, words come out of mouth, so that's exactly why we have this picture here. Now, notice, in the Bible, say in Hebrews 4.12, we have that famous verse, for the word of God is living and active, and it surgically dissects between the heart and the mind and these things. The word for sword there is the word that actually translates better to a precision dagger, more like a scalpel, we would say today. This word that is being talked about coming out of his mouth here, this is the Greek word for a heavy broadsword. This was a weapon of war. This was to be used on the battlefield. It was a massive, long broadsword, like you would see if you ever watch any fantasy movies, you'll notice the king always has the biggest sword, right? <laughs> that's the idea. This is the, this is the concept that's being expressed here. In Revelation 19, when we get to the end of this book, you read this. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. So that's the same imagery there. So that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. Again, it's telling us that this is the time, this is the final time when the enemies of God, those who stand against him, will realize that they cannot defeat him. You see, the only thing the Lord needs in battle is literally his word. That's it. It's not like he's going to come to the ground and there's going to be like a massive fight. Everyone else is going to get their, their weapons out and there's going to be some sort of cosmic struggle. No, he appears in glory, he speaks, he wins. 
That's our Lord. That is how powerful he is. Think, he brought forth the whole of creation with his word. He will judge the world with his word too. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul, speaking of that final world ruler who will oppose everything that God says, it says that the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his coming and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So his breath rather than a sword this time and his appearance. Simply by his word and the glory, the shining radiant light that we see, it will make everything else that he wants just go. That's it. He wins. That's all he needs. It is a picture again of his word and of his glory. And it says his face was like the sun, the sun shining in its strength. This is another reference to the glory of God. John glimpsed this before. Do you remember in the Gospels and the Transfiguration when he was taken up to the mountain and the Lord allowed the disciples to see a little glimpse of what he was like if he unveiled his glory? And it says this in Matthew 17 too. It says he was transfigured before them. And look at the phrasing here. This is where John gets it. And his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. That he allowed the disciples just to have that small glimpse when he was here on earth. But now what we're talking about in John, that is what he's like when he's coming back. This radiance, this glory is so bright, so powerful. At the end of Revelation, we learn that there'll be no need for any sun because the light of the glory of the Lamb will light the entire world. That is the sort of thing we're talking about. We can barely even comprehend what that means. In the letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes this, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. That's the glory of God that he's talking about here. Let's look at verse 17 as we finish off. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and I placed his right hand, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. So this vision is too overwhelming for John. The sight of the unrestrained, glorified, majestic king, the sound of his mighty voice, it is too much for him, and he falls to his feet as dead. Now this is why I always say, be very careful when you read these best-selling books about someone who's had a vision or a trip to heaven, and you know, they've sat down and they've had a cup of tea with Jesus, and you know, I'm making fun of it because I do find it ridiculous, but these things are serious because people make best-selling books of them and they go on and they do the circuits and there's a lot of money involved with them. People describe things like this. Think about this. This is the Apostle John here. This was the man who walked with Jesus. He was so close to Jesus. He spoke with him. He ate with him. He knew him intimately. He laid his head on the chest of Jesus as they were having a Passover meal. And now, when he sees the glorified risen Lord, he falls to the ground as is he dead. Now think about that contrast. That is how glorious, how powerful the Lord is when we see him unrestrained, unveiled, when the glory is shining through. That is what is happening here. However, it is still the same Lord. And I like that you have this little touch here. The Lord still reaches out his hands and he touches John and he says, don't be afraid. There is no reason for you to fear me. This is me in my true glory, but you do know me. I have revealed myself to you. The person you sat with and ate with, that is me. And it's the same person. And that brings us great comfort, I'd imagine, as we look at this image here. He then gives one last description of himself. He says, I am the first and the last. 
Now, the first and the last is, again, a passage from the Old Testament. It's from Isaiah 44, verse 6, a few places in Isaiah, but I'll read to you Isaiah 44, verse 6. It says this, this is a title and description that can only rightly be applied to God. It says this in Isaiah, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. Therefore, this is in Revelation teaching that Jesus Christ is God. And that is a very important verse to know because many of the cults that you will meet, people like Jehovah's Witnesses, one of the things, they'll say they believe in Jesus, but not the actual Jesus that we're believing in because they don't believe Jesus was God. Here, John makes, Jesus himself introduces himself with the name of God. He says, I am the first and the last. He then says, I am the living one. This is another phrase from the Old Testament. Throughout the Bible, you'll see uh, God of the Bible being referred to as the living one, the living God. This is the re reference that he's making here. He's unmistakably identifying himself with God. And then to avoid any confusion, and this is a very powerful verse, he says, and I was dead. Now, we know that God cannot die. God is eternal. So what is he must, be, must he be referring to here, the Lord Jesus Christ? When did God die? He died on the cross, didn't he? So this is a reference to the cross, and then he's alive forevermore, which is a reference to the resurrection. He says that he was dead, and he was resurrected. Thus, the book of Revelation holds Jesus as the overcomer of death. He is the very antithesis to death. Death entered this world because of sin. It holds power over men because of sin. It is unnatural. It is unwelcomed. It is an intrusion into God's creation. And that came when Adam and Eve first sinned, and all of us in our own sin. We learn at the end of the book of Revelation, it says there shall be no more death because the living one is now in charge of everything and Satan has been dealt with forevermore. He wasn't resurrected to die again like Lazarus did. He was resurrected to live eternally as the glorified prince and king. He is the way, the truth and the life. He will eternally exist in glory that is who he is. That is the vision that John is giving us here. And then he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. This is a reference to all the passages, so many of them that I couldn't really pick one to quote in the Old Testament that speak of Hades and death as having a gate. Now, Jesus used this imagery too. The gates of hell shall not prevail. Now, a gate has a key, doesn't it? That's the idea that's being uh, given here. The key of death and Hades and to unlock the key of death and Hades, you have to defeat death. That's the idea that Jesus is getting at here. He has the keys to death and Hades because he is the one that defeated death. 1 Corinthians 15, O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that defeated that final enemy of death. Jesus now has the keys because he is the living one. He defeated death. His resurrection, you could say, turned the key on the gate to death. And he liberated all who would believe in him to eternal life and took the power away from the enemy. And it is now in his hands. This is the Jesus that the book of Revelation is revealing to us. And this is the Jesus that we have given our lives to and that we serve. Let's finish these last two verses. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So often you see that this symbolism is explained within the book itself. The, the lampstands are the churches, the stars are the messengers of the churches or the angels, it says there. But look at verse 19. I'll just make a point about this before and then it'll give us a good place to close. This is a threefold structure to the book of Revelation. Many people have identified this and I think it's a very good way to study the book of Revelation. The things which you have seen, literally what he has just seen, this glorified picture of Jesus Christ. The things which are, this is the, the things that he is living through and right up until the end of the church. This is the church age as we call it. And then the things which will take place after these things. That is the day of the Lord. That is the time when the king comes back to take his kingdom. The final period of judgment before the final period of blessing. Remember, when we say this period of judgment, we often don't like to think about what's going to happen in those things. I don't think it pertains to those who are safe and kept secure within the Lord. If you're a Christian, you don't have to even concern yourself with that. But it's like birth pangs before a birth. That's the imagery you find in the Bible. Right before a woman gives birth and you get all that joy from the new baby, you get this very intense struggle, don't you? The contractions start and that's what happens. It's the same imagery that's being used for the arrival of the kingdom. The arrival of that time when all the blessings and fulfillment of everything you've been working towards come to fruition. But before that, there are these very intense tremors. And it actually says, like a woman in pregnancy. And this is what we're reading about in the book of Revelation. The, king, the kingdom is almost about to come. But just before it comes, there's a little bit of tremor to go through whilst the Lord deals with these things. And then when that's done, the kingdom comes, it's life evermore, and all these things are dealt with. This is the journey we'll be in the book of Revelation. Amen? You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.